wow, how do you learn if you're not prepared to fail? And how do you progress if you don't celebrate failure? The shock of going, of getting my tuition bill and finding out that this was not something my parents had actually saved for galvanized me into never having to be stressed that I wouldn't have enough savings to support myself. I began my career as an analyst in New York, then worked in Europe, Japan, Hong Kong, and Australia in senior executive and leadership roles with Merrill Lynch, Goldman Sachs, HBSC, and JB Ware. As Scale Investor CEO, I facilitated patient capital investment into exceptional Australian early stage businesses. My executive career has been quite the journey. Super proud to have raised two amazing now adult daughters. So can we, we'll get to all of that stuff, but can we begin with how you grew up? Absolutely. And, um, Thanks for reading that out. It's always embarrassing to to, um, to introduce yourself, and it's great that that resonated with you. And thanks for reaching out to me for this podcast. I love all the conversations you have with all the people you've been talking. Been great. Um, So I grew up in a very international family. Both my parents were from Europe, um, and they both wanted a new life away from very traditional family um and um structured um large families going to boarding school and having very formal education um so they my parents decided they wanted to build a new life in the u.s after they met um so my mother's french my father's family was from the austria-hungary empire we think czechoslovakia what is now czechoslovakia um, we know that our parents met in London, got married in par- in France, and coincidentally in the same church where um, my sister and I consequently got married. And um, they moved to Boston, had um, my sister and I, and then my brother in Philadelphia. But growing up, I moved to Paris at a very young age lived in Paris till I was six and then moved back to the U.S., lived outside of Philadelphia. Um, then we moved to Maryland. My father was an engineer. My mom was a school teacher. And um, then we moved to Amsterdam in when I was in year 12, actually. So that was quite challenging. I finished high school at the International School of Amsterdam. Then I really wanted to go back to study at uh, university in the U.S. So I actually went back to Boston for uni. I was then um, recruited by Merrill Lynch to move to New York. But I grew up basically between uh, the Northeast, uh, New England part of the U.S. and Europe, France and the Netherlands. And what was driving all the moves? My father primarily, he was an engineer and he loved project work. So whenever there was a project... He would often put his hand up and my poor mother, she was raising us three children, trying to establish herself in the U.S. And yeah, we would move every four to six years growing up. Um, So I finished, my sister finished high school outside of Philadelphia. I finished high school in Amsterdam and my younger brother 
ended up finishing high school in Texas. So each of us had a slightly different experience. And so where felt like home to you? That's a great question because um, growing up, I moved around so much. The one place that remained constant in my life was my grandmother's place in Normandy, France. And that's been my anchor. And um, we are fortunate enough to still have her property in the family. And actually, um, I've kept it for my family after my grandmother passed away and then my mother passed away four years ago. So um, it's amazing to believe that something that meant so much to me growing up is now part of my family and my legacy. My daughters really enjoy going there too. And why did you decide to join Merrill Lynch? So growing up, my father, so both my parents were highly focused on education, education being the key that would unlock many, many doors. Um, my mother was a pretty strict educator. So, um, and because she'd grown up in French, in the French education system, for your listeners who are familiar with that system, it's very formal. It's very strict. There's tons of homework. So, um, my mother used to give us homework on top of our American homework just to make sure that we were getting all the base fix. <laughs> and she, what she kinds happy. of stuff? Oh, the spelling, math. Um, yeah, lots of, of rote learning, lots of handwriting, actually, um, because she didn't like the way they taught handwriting in America, which is funny. Um, and my handwriting is terrible because I kept getting confused messages about handwriting. But um, yeah, we did a lot. And then I think I just learned how to push myself at a very early age. I'm the middle child. Um, but my father being quite technical, he also said when I was quite young, he said, study whatever you want, but make sure it's a technical subject. And that really stuck with me. So when I went to uni, I studied economics and mathematics. And um, my father was suggesting I go into pharmacy or engineering. He really wanted me to uh, follow a technical path. He he said, look, Ariane, you're really smart. You should be doing something highly technical. And I grew up in um, the mid 80s and finished university in the mid 90s. So at that time, I was getting caught up with everything that was happening in the 80s and 90s, having grown up with Reagan and having grown up with what was happening with privatization in France and across Europe, I was fascinated by markets. So I ended up really wanting to explore Wall Street. And um, both my parents were horrified because they knew nothing about Wall Street banking. Um, they really didn't want me as a single young woman moving to Manhattan. And that's probably exactly why I did. <laughs> Got it. What language did you speak at home, by the way? Oh, great question. Um, so we used to speak French with my mother, but my father was not a fluent French speaker. So we did end up speaking English because I had to take, I had speech therapy when I was nine. Um, my, one of my American teachers said that I had an accent and it was a big no-no in America at the time to have a French accent. So they, they kind of taught me out of it. I remember going to speech therapy once a week and them teaching me how to pronounce the TH sound, the, the, I couldn't say the, 
I used to say ze, and it took me months to get away from ze into the. Wow. And are your, were your siblings the same? No, I think each of us had a different experience. So my sister actually is a much better reader and writer in French than I am. And my brother is much more Anglophile. Um, but all three of us um, are very functional, especially when we're in France, because we've got a very large family. My mother was one of nine children. And she was the only one who left France. And um, yeah, growing up, we used to go back to France pretty regularly, like at least at least once every two years, if not every year, if my parents could afford it. And what did you, language did your parents speak to each other in? English. Yeah, okay. but they would. So you would. My mom would slip into French whenever she was angry. She'd slip into French. Or if she was trying to kind of make a point, I think she would um, she would have little French expressions. So we had lots of, you know, little family inside jokes in French and things like that. And what was your dad's native language? Well, actually, he grew up in Baghdad. He was part of a, a very small Catholic community in Baghdad. So he learned Arabic growing up, but he went to Jesuit school so I imagine he probably would have been bilingual from a very young age in English and Arabic. And then how does the hungry part fit in? So his family, my maiden name was Svoboda, which means freedom in Slavic languages. His family, I think four generations ago, moved from the Austria-Hungary empire to Baghdad. They were crystal merchants. It's the story that I've heard, but I don't know which exact part of the empire they're from. Um, and there's interesting anecdotal evidence about the Svoboda family and um, who they were back in the um, 19th century. But yeah, his branch of the family ended up in Baghdad, Iraq. Are they still, are they, is some of your family still there? No. Um, I had an uncle, my father's older brother, who was there, but he died and didn't have any children. Have you visited? No, but my sister has. Wow. Must be so interesting. Yeah, it's a really interesting family heritage. So my, my uncle on my father's side, he was the head of the architectural school of, um, of Iraq. And... Um, he was he studied in London. Um, my father my father got a scholarship from the Iraqi government to study engineering in London. So they both studied in England, and my father ended up staying, and that's how he met my mum. And your mum was there teaching. Yes. Nice. And then where did they ultimately stay in the U.S.? They moved back and forth. So they met in the UK. Um, and I heard a story that whenever they had a fight, she would go back to France and then he'd come get her, they'd make up. And then um, this kind of went on and off for a couple of years. And then he got his job in the US and he said, okay, great. We're, we're moving to the US. And she's like, no, we're not, we're not engaged or anything. So he's like, I'm not going to get 
cornered into an engagement or a marriage. So off he went to the U.S. And then I, I heard that three weeks later he could, he called her up and said, "Okay, get the wedding ready. I miss you." <laughs> so so they did get married in France. Moved to Boston. I think my father's first job was with Honeywell. It was either Honeywell or Exxon back then. Um, yeah, and he was working for a range of um, petroleum companies in primarily in the US but then we went to Amsterdam because he was working at Royal Dutch Shell for some time but yeah um, they were mostly in the US but we did do um, a couple of stints in in Europe so um, when I was growing up I spent some time in France and then in in the Netherlands and then where by the time you were working at Merrill Lynch and starting your career mm-hmm where were they then or where were they in their retirement so they moved to houston texas after i finished high school so i I finished high school moved to boston my parents and my younger brother moved to houston texas and when i and they they basically stayed there um so after i graduated uni i moved to new york city for as an analyst with Merrill Lynch and um, my brother graduated high school. He stayed in Texas and went to the university of Texas and my parents stayed in Texas until my father passed away in 2000. Yeah. And your brother's still there, right? Correct. Okay. So what was um, Merrill Lynch like? It was amazing. So to join Merrill Lynch in the mid nineties as an analyst was exactly what I wanted. I was at uni, I was working really hard. Um, So I'm just backtracking slightly just to give you context. But when I went to uni, I joined the rowing team. I had two part-time jobs. I was a full-time student and I was just living life for the first time on my own terms, which I absolutely loved. Um, And then going to New York was an extension of that. So, you know, I really loved um, going to museums, going um, running. I joined the running club around Central Park. I loved checking out the clubs in New York. Um, I loved being young and um, an analyst with a whole class of analysts. I think there was about 150 of us around that amount and they were recruited from you know some of the best schools across the US and the UK because they brought all the analysts together at the same time in Manhattan um, in the summer. So they hire you when you graduate, you, you start the program in the summer. New York's really hot. A lot of people in the office are, you know, kind of waiting until they have a vacation, but they're, they're really grilling the analysts and getting you immersed in accounting finance. We learned all about the different asset classes. We were just given this really intensive, um, six week immersion course in preparation for the series seven exam, which is like the U S brokerage exam at the same time of being young and free in New York. And we all had to obviously organize our own accommodation. So, um, many people had never lived in New York before. And you just, it was the first time I'd worked that intensely and well with other smart people who were interested in the same thing. 
Um, so being, again, being in that industry and something that we all had applied for and that we've been recruited for, it was just something that brought people together. And I loved that sense of community, which I hadn't really felt before, probably a little bit in high school when I was at the International School of Amsterdam. But um, yeah, it was just on a bigger scale. And it was, in, it was intense. So, um, but you weren't alone. So you're going through this really intense program with a bunch of other people around your age. And it, even though it was intense, you had support and you had people that you could study with other people for the series seven. If there were concepts that didn't make sense, you could catch up after sessions with, um, you know, the debt finance guy, for example. Um, I remember there was a guy who gave us like a four day crash course on corporate finance. And he was talking about his, um, his shares in Starbucks because Starbucks just floated and nobody had ever really rated a coffee chain. And, and he was saying, this thing's going to go great. And half of the analysts were like, that sounds like a terrible investment idea. <laughs> it was just all those, all those things that I got an opportunity. I was so fortunate to be immersed in that time um, in finance in you know, almost the epicenter of what was going on with capital markets. And so, sorry, going back to uni, what was the motivator for you to have two part-time jobs? Oh, so my parents, having both been educated in Europe, were not that familiar with the U.S. Um, tuition scheme. And um, my sister had applied from the U.S., so she was considered a domestic student, but because I applied from... Um, Amsterdam, I was treated as an international student, so the fees were much higher for me than for my sister. And to put it bluntly, my parents weren't prepared to pay um, U.S. tuition for me, but I didn't find out until basically when I was when I received the bill. So my parents were encouraging me to take a gap year, but I really, really wanted to start university. So I made that commitment that I was going to contribute to my education and basically pay as much of my tuition as I could. Wow. So you were just really motivated to go? 100%. I really wanted that experience because my parents were encouraging me to study in Europe, but I really, really wanted my U.S. university experience. Why was that? I think just having seen what was happening in the US and the opportunities. It's such a meritocracy. It's, you know, it's what you make it. Whereas Europe and then and now is still not as fast paced when it comes to finance. Um, you know, if you look at equity markets and I started, I started investing at a very young age, just, you know, following companies, um, I used to work at places like The Limited. I don't know if anybody would remembers those places, but when in high school, I remember when I was working in the store and then they listed and the shares just went gangbusters. And I could just see consumer activity in action and being part of that and then following the shares in a company that I was a consumer in and knowing that I could participate in that investment story was just, riveting for me and um and then 
I really wanted to understand how these markets worked domestically and internationally. So um, I just didn't feel like I'd get close enough to it all in Europe. I thought it was a lot of the activity, a lot of the business activity in Europe and other parts of the world was a lot, was much more opaque to me than listed markets in the US. And um, it probably emerged gradually over time. But having had my economics and math degree, I really wanted to apply it in a practical sense. I didn't want to go into a, a, a more academic path. My sister, my sister studied science and she became, and she went on to do her PhD. She went down a much more academic path and I'm immensely proud of her, but it wasn't the path I wanted. I wanted real life, you know, blood and guts, immersion, um, jump in feet first. I just wanted to really live my life. And I thought like if I was in the U S I would have those experiences and I'd be able to be, um, a lot more free with trying different things and not being judged. Amazing. So what was your first investment and how old were you? So my first investment was Dell, Dell computer shares. And I think I bought them when I was about, I want to say 18 because I didn't move to the U S until I back to the U.S. for college until I was 18. It might have been even later, but I was watching Michael Dell and I was looking, I think that first experience was probably in the dorm when I used to have to go to the library every time I wanted to save a file, print a file, because people didn't have computers. And then people started buying Dell computers in my dorm and I just watched this model of um, mail ordering computers and nobody else was doing it. And back then IBM and Hewlett Packard were the big names in town, but those were computers that corporations would buy, not individuals. Um, there were Macs in, um, when I, when I graduated and I was applying for jobs, I used to go, and book time on the Mac so I could type my CV and print it. I remember that, and I was using it as a word processor. But before that, the Dell computers were definitely taking off like hotcakes. So, yeah, Dell shares were my first investment. And I think I I made, like, at least 10 times my money in Dell early on. And um, Wow. Yeah. And I, when I sold, I, I, I sold them in small amounts and I bought different things. But even before that, actually, one thing I did do when I was very young, and my parents got really mad at me. I don't know why. Um, I, I had this dream of buying myself a moped because everybody in France had mopeds and I really wanted this moped. So I used to babysit when I was much younger, when I was about from 13 till 16, I used to babysit. And I saved all that money and I was saving, 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 saving all of it until I could buy myself this red moped, which I bought on my 16th birthday, which was the most satisfying thing at that time. It was, that was my very first like real purchase and I loved it. It was fabulous. Wow. That's so funny because I used to babysit for you. 
but <laughs> I could not tell you what I did with that money. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so interesting. So it was really, and were your parents like encouraging of this? Like you working and saving or you were just kind of doing it on your own? I think I was doing it on my own. Um, I think what I realized gradually, which in hindsight is quite clear, is that because my parents had grown up in families who sent them to boarding school and then they they basically moved to the U.S. to start a new life, um, neither of them were were great with money. And so, and then the shock of going, of getting my tuition bill and finding out that this was not something my parents had actually saved for properly galvanized me into never having to be stressed that I wouldn't have enough savings to support myself. Um, And that's definitely carried me through for a very long time. Um, And my father, also my father got quite sick. So my father had a heart attack when I was 13 and he had a heart transplant soon thereafter. And he was in and out of hospital from the time I was 13 until when he died when I was 28. And I knew that because of my father's health, most of my parents' savings had gone into his medical care. Again, because in the U.S. there isn't very good medical insurance. so his employers covered some of it, but the bulk of it, my parents had to spend their lifetime savings on heart transplants and hospitalizations and supporting his medical care, drugs, etc. So I learned at a very early age that I was going to have to look after myself. My parents were amazing. My mother is a very, very strong woman, extremely strong. Um, she kept us all together. She kept us going. But I, I probably realized subliminally quite early and then subsequent to that just really pushed and drove myself to be able to support myself and succeed and I ended up being quite ambitious so did you feel like at uni you had to make lots of sacrifices or you just didn't think of it like that I didn't think like that at all I I actually probably just lived life to the full because I really wanted to. So growing up, I wasn't allowed to go out. For example, I wasn't allowed to date. (laughs) I wasn't allowed out at night when we lived in Amsterdam past like 10 o'clock and all my high school friends were going out all night doing God knows what. So my parents are pretty strict. So when I got to high school, um, sorry, to, to uni, I just really just wanted to live life to the full and I did, and I had a great time. Um, and it, I probably that probably translated into my work ethic because r- being on the rowing team, going out, working, studying, and, and just pushing myself and realizing I could do all these things. In hindsight, you know, I probably burnt the candle at both ends. But I was young, I was free, I was happy, I was making friends, I was exploring, I was learning new things, I was. Um, just really enjoying my life and being on my own in Boston, which is an amazing city. And as a student, it was just fabulous. And then the same with New York, you know, being in New York, single, me, me, making friends, 
um, working, learning new things. And there's always something new to learn. And I'm a lifetime learner. So that was just that, that challenge and that excitement and that opportunity was really exciting for me. And were your friends into investing as well? Or your, like, how, how did you even, like, how did you figure out where to go and buy the Dell stocks? Oh gosh, I just researched it. I think I just naturally started um, reading The Economist and getting reading the Wall Street Journal. When I went to New York, we got a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. I had a roommate who went, she got a research job. And so I was, I ended up being on a capital markets desk because she was a research analyst. So the two of us were definitely in that world and all, all of our colleagues were in that world. But in, in, um, in uni, most of my peers were studying. I mean, I didn't really meet and hang out with that many people in my maths classes, a little bit in my economics classes, but most of the economics and maths people I, I studied with went down more research academic pathways rather than going into finance. Some of them went into, um, went on to be actuaries, but I didn't know that many people who went to New York. So a lot of them stayed in Boston and went, if they did go into finance, they'd go and work at places like Fidelity or State Street Bank or something like that. Um, so yeah, I just had to meet, I met a whole bunch of new people in Manhattan. And how did you think about your job search or you just knew you wanted to be on Wall Street and that was your target? Well, actually, my job search was focused on New York or Paris. I was determined that I was going to go and live and work in either New York or Paris. I was lucky because I have a French passport and my and I'm fluent French speaker. So by that point, I was ready to work in Europe. But um, I sent out tons of cover letters. And back then, it, I tell my daughters a story like you had to handprint every single one. It was crazy. And um, luckily, I didn't have to type them, but I had to book time in the computer lab on my little on the little Mac, you know, with my little disk that I carry around. So yeah, I remember sending hundreds of cover letters and resumes. What? So and you post them? Yeah, hundred percent. Oh my They're, god! Yeah. This is how do you get the address of the <laughs> bank? Well, there were a lot, they did recruit on campus, to be fair. So they would have recruitment fairs for seniors and they'd come and talk to you. Like, so they have little booths and each company would come and talk about what they did. So some of the jobs I, I applied for, I would meet the recruitment team at those job fairs. But I don't think Merrill Lynch came to my, I can't remember actually. But I got really good at researching who to send the the resume to. Um, and I remember later when I was actually working at Merrill Lynch and I was working in Tokyo and I was um, seeing people getting their nieces and nephews or, you know, second cousins or whatever, sending their resumes in. I'm like, nobody helped me with this because, you know, there was a lot of people reference, you know, referring their family or, or you know, relations to jobs and I was like oh I didn't know that was a thing I thought that was unethical but now I realize that there's a lot of that that happens 
So you were sending it rather than like the HR department or something. You were figuring out, okay, I'm going to send it to this banker. I was sending, I was figuring out which, which um, team to send it to. Yes. So first I would check if they had a program because somebody had said to me, if you can get into a program with a corporate, that's a really great way to go. So I researched all the different undergrad program, corporate corporate programs, which are still great, um, as you know. And then um, I just progressively, I just kept sending things out until I started getting responses. And then I had a ton of interviews and um, I did get some interviews in Boston, but that kind of reaffirmed for me, I really wanted to move to New York. And the jobs that came back for Paris, it wasn't going to be easy for me to go and interview in Paris and nobody, nobody had offered to, you know, there was no way in hell anybody was going to fly a 21-year-old, 22-year-old to Paris for an interview. But, um, yeah, all the jobs that came back from Paris were not as interesting as what was emerging in New York. So, um, yeah, by the time I went through the Maryland recruitment process, interview process, there was a lot of phone interviews. Um, yeah, it was a good fit by that point. And was it really competitive to get? one of these jobs back then yes as it is now yes very competitive and what was the male female split oh gosh i think there was about i want to say 20 percent of us were probably were women thereabouts if that Mm -hmm. and so what what team were you in? So originally I was in the equities team and the way the program worked was that you get hired as an analyst, you get, you spend a year rotating on different desks. So you go, you do a month, you do 12 different rotations. So you'll spend a month in finance, you'll spend a month in FX, you'll spend a month in debt, a month in equities, a month, a month in operations, a month in technology. And at the end of the year, um, each of those departments has got jobs on offer and they, they pick who they want to hire from the people that rotated through their desks and who they had a chance to work with. Got it. Have I told you my really stupid story about Merrill Lynch in New York? No. When I, <laughs> so my story is very different to yours. I had no idea what investment banking was. I didn't even know what my dad's job was, that that's what I just thought he wore a suit and went to an office. I didn't know. Like by the point I was 22 and then everyone's talking about investment banking. I'm, yeah, I know I want to move to New York, but I just need to get a job. I thought I could be a waitress or something. I didn't know that it's not like in Australia where you're not minimum wage. It's not as high. So then I started meeting banks because I was like, okay, well, oh, whatever, talk to these banks. And I was meeting, had an introduction to Merrill Lynch and was meeting someone called like David Lynch. And I was like, (laughs) oh, dad, I'm meeting the founder of this place (laughs) called Merrill Lynch. (laughs) He was like, you are an idiot. But I've literally never heard of it. I don't think I'd heard of, like, Goldman Sachs even. So, Well, it's quite different. 
because it wasn't until I moved to Hong Kong much later that I realized that all these firms, so I think I'd interviewed with um, what is now Solomon, well, Solomon Smith, Barney, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan. And it was only because I went on this rabbit hole of investment banking and I was already buying shares and I was really, really into markets. And I was like, this is what I want to do. Um, except if I'd gotten some kind of awesome role in Paris in fashion or something. But I was equally thinking, well, if none of this works, I'll go to Paris and be a waitress for six months and just live there and find something else. But um, it's funny how life works. You know, you don't, I mean, I remember going through that rotation through the FX desk and all the jargon to this day, you know, one of the my biggest pet peeves is jargon because every country, every market, every asset class has their own jargon. And, you know, I just feel like um, it's part of the lingo, but it, for a young person, I, it's so important for young people to just ask basic questions because you don't get a chance when you're older, when you're older, people just expect you to know all this stuff. But that was one of the things that I learned on my journey, which is having moved to so many countries. So after I started in New York, I worked in New York for two years. Then I worked, then I got promoted and transferred to London where I worked for two years. Then I got um, sent to Asia and I worked in M&A in Tokyo before getting sent to do project work in Hong Kong on the equities trading floor with a massive technology overhaul project. And then um, I got hired by Goldman Sachs to do something completely different. But having moved around to different firms and different markets and different asset classes, so I worked in equities, debt, um, then M&A, then almost electronic trading. And when that was coming in, you just get thrown all these different terms. And again, it's mostly, it's, it's, it's mostly guys. So it's very, it's very macho and, um, you just have to, you have to stand on your own two feet, which sometimes, you know, it's, it's not that easy. I loved it. But yeah. at the same time, there were there were moments where, you know, I felt like this foolish young woman saying, well, hang on, you know, what, what are, what are basis points? Like when you're talking about basis points, what are you saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I think people have to keep asking and not be afraid to ask um, like acronyms and jargon. If you don't know what it means, just ask because everyone else, uh, you're not born knowing this stuff. Like everyone knows something because they were taught it at some point. So I remember at a, a client, like, um, there was this presentation that my manager was giving and he, there were like lots of, I guess, jargon and, te- and like, acronyms and there was one that was like dvd and the client was like sorry um but what does dvd mean because i guess he was sick of he was just being like i'm the client like speak to me in language i understand anyway but it was literally like a dvd and the guy was like um i don't know how to explain what a dvd is and i don't know what it stands for but you know the thing. but it's like yeah but just ask if you're not Clear. Yeah, it's quite simple, but it's it 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 was it was amazing, and it still amazes me today. 
that people who are immersed in these areas just take it as a given that everybody knows what they're saying. And usually by the time, you know, you're getting into a certain conversation, you do. But if you've got an analyst or a young person or even a client, like just be a plain English speaker. And when I started reading about plain English, I thought this is great. And I actually used it. I used the term um, in a meeting in Melbourne once years later. I said, uh, let's write everything in plain English. And they thought I was joking as in I was saying, you know, write it simply, write it clearly. But this concept of plain English is an actual thing. And I was trying to explain to them that, you know, and this was a particular team that every time they wrote a paper, I think it was related to risk. Every time they wrote a paper, it was just gobbledygook and nobody would read it. So I said, you know, let's write this succinctly using plain English so that it can actually be translated and used practically. And I piss people off by saying that. So I've kind of come full circle because in the beginning, I didn't say anything. Then I would ask the question. Then I would just figure it out by myself because it was too painful to ask the question. And the looks you would get would just be really rude and insulting. And now I'm back to, okay, how can I help you synthesize, refine, and and explain this more simply? Because often when it's quite technical, many people will not be fully across it. And I feel like that's unfair, particularly to, um, to clients, customers, and even different parts of teams who may be performing different functions and may not be immersed in that particular technical area. So it exists in every single asset class, equities, debt, alternatives, real estate, everything. Um, there's jargon all over the place. Plus there's jargon, which is specific to Australia, to the Europe, to Asia, to the US. And having worked in all these markets, I look at it and I'm thinking, okay, there's a translation role here. And that's probably a skill that I picked up over the years, which is that translation piece. You know, how do you convert language and terminology into concepts that people can really understand so you can do your job? Mm hmm. Yeah, that's really important. I think as well for consumers, like not getting ripped off with, if you don't understand like a financial thing or like, yeah, buying real estate or something, it can be scary. Mm -hmm. Maybe particularly for women, but I don't know, people might not like it if I say that, but to just say like, I don't know what this means. Can you please explain it? Yeah. And if super. you're too scared to ask, you can yeah just end up like, going along with something that doesn't work for you. It's super important. And and that's something else I'm grateful for because my parents both instilled enough confidence in me to back myself and also the freedom that I gained by growing up primarily in the US. You just don't have that sense of fear. Whereas when I went to Asia, I learned a lot about humility in Asia. Um, because the US centric style of working just doesn't work at all in Asia, particularly in Hong Kong, China. Um, and having worked in Hong Kong for 12 years, you just learn how to be much more polite and, um, wait until someone's asking you a question before you offer an opinion. Um, and then you try and think, you try and be very thoughtful about how you're going to present information so that you're not insulting anyone. Um, and then coming to Australia after Asia, again, 
I had to go through this whole different cultural transformation because it's such a rules-based place. Everybody's like, everybody's waiting to be told what the rule is. And I'd be asking questions around, well, you know, why are we doing this this way? And what about this? Because I'd seen it done differently. And again, I was stepping on people's toes because I'd be asking what I would think would be basic inquiry questions and people are looking at me like, don't you know this? Or this is just the way things are done. And I'm like, well, actually, um, A, I don't understand why you're doing it this way. And B, I, I, have, I have seen it done a different way elsewhere. And it's purely a question. It's not a criticism. But um, I definitely learned when I moved to Australia that you have to be careful about how you ask questions because people can be sensitive that you're criticizing them because it's a very, it's much more judgmental um, culture I found um, from, from other work environments that I've been in. That's so interesting because that's exactly what I found when I went home last. I was just asking questions like, this doesn't seem to make sense to me this rule, like, can someone explain it? And it was like, you cannot, uh, like, people are shocked that it's like, I'm questioning something. It's like, but that makes sense because it's like people, people like the rules or people just, the rules are given and then people follow them and questioning. And yeah, it was like, I was, it was scandalous that I would ask or people felt like, yeah, it's a criticism. Yeah, and it's really interesting because I have now been in Australia for over 12 years and um, I'm still learning how to communicate effectively without coming across as too polite or withholding what I really think. Because if I say what I really think and I'm reasonably experienced at this stage, then sometimes it can it can come across too directly and, and people get on the back foot so there is definitely a cultural piece where i've grown up in markets in different countries and i'm trying to bring together all my experience and be really effective in my in my roles while also being genuine to the spirit of what i'd be working on at any given time so typically it's a finance related function but also typically i'm working with technical experts in a certain field who have been doing what they've been doing for a very long time. Whereas I may have just had um, an experience in that area. And I know enough about that specialization where I can have a rigorous con conversation, but I'm not necessarily the technical expert. So that was something else that I really enjoyed about markets. Like when I worked with, having worked in banking with really, really smart, driven, motivated people who are ambitious, the the really confident ones you get along with well because everyone's kind of pushing and motivating each other and excited to learn from each other. And I made some great friends who were technical experts and they loved sharing their insights. Um, whereas I like to learn enough of a certain subject that I could do my role effectively, but then there'd be something else that would come along. For example, when I was hired by Goldman Sachs to run their hedge fund business in Asia, they were just setting up their hedge fund desk. Um, hedge funds were only just becoming a thing. And I was like, 
I want to know what this is about. I want to understand what hedging is. I want to understand what we're hedging, why we're hedging. What are the different types of hedges? How do we consider arbitrage? And I really love that. Um, whereas my peers who I worked with in debt and equity, they were just going deeper and deeper into debt and equity products. And I was like, okay, well, we're going to do a pair trade, long, long a stock, short or correlated stock. And I found that absolutely fascinating and managing and monitoring the risks associated with pair trades or even CB arbitrage, just looking at those different concepts and they were all being created around me. And I got to talk, I got to learn from some of the best in the business, particularly working in Asia, um, in markets which hadn't really had arbitrage or hedging exposure in the past. I just found that riveting. Um, and sort of being on the on the ground of something new for me was um was quite exciting and motivating and, and learning while things were being created. I love that. Um and that kind of translated into when I came to Australia and I got involved in the startup sector here, um, startups were not really a thing in Australia. People were not comfortable with the risk of venture capital. There's there's been private equity here for a while, but startups were really like, oh, you know, startups, ooh, you know, like, why would you do that? <laughs> I was about to ask whether you think that's linked to the idea that you just follow rules and you don't ask questions. Like, surely that stifles innovation. Like, surely innovation comes from asking questions and then being like, hey, isn't there a better way to do this? if people are too scared to come up with new ways to do things, then you don't get like a well, thriving the, startup culture. Yeah, absolutely. But there's, I mean, I, I'm an optimist, so I'm looking at every single market and country through a positive lens and I'm considering the pros and cons. So having not lived in America now since 1996 and I look at U.S. politics and I just think, wow, that's a huge mess. And I'm glad I don't live there anymore, but I appreciate how I learned um, to, to be ambitious, driven, um, prepared to take risks, comfortable with failure, um, the concept of freedom, personal freedom. I really, really appreciate those things about my upbringing. And so when I got to Australia and people were afraid to fail, for me, that was anathema. I was like, wow, how do you learn if you're not prepared to fail? And how do you progress if you don't celebrate failure? And I think it, my, my, my fallback is that it's a much smaller country. It's a much smaller market. And people want to know what other people are on about. And so you can help, you can define people by their success or their failures. And, and unfortunately, we we're getting better at it, but unfortunately, you know, if you fail here, that kind of, you carry that around for a long time. Um, but I'd like to think that that is changing and I'm definitely following a number of startups and invested in a number of startups and admiring a number of venture capital firms who have been breaking that mold. And, um, and that's pretty exciting for Australia, particularly now. So how do they do that? How do they break them out? 
or and how does carrying the failure look like is it the way that is it the attitude of people so in the u.s if you fail or i think israel is like a really great example like tel aviv the culture i was there when they like failed the land moon landing thing and they were like it's not a failure it's an attempt which is crazy that that like tiny country is the sending something to the moon when only three other countries have done that and they're just like it's an attempt like you just keep going whereas yeah so is it the attitude in australia is more like oh because i remember you told me something once that it's in australia it's more like looking at the past it's like looking at what someone's done whereas in other places it's like looking at more forward looking Yeah, so I'm trying to remember that conversation because I was thinking about um, a number of contexts. So when I, so I, I mean, I'm thinking about my audit and risk roles where, you know, audit is a very backward looking function. You know, what did we do? How did we do it? And auditing it. And risk is a very forward looking function. You know, what are our risks? What are our opportunities? What are we prepared to take risk on? Where are we not prepared to take risks? I'm not sure if that was the conversation you're referring to, but um, I I don't like to generalize because people and cultures always surprise me. And particularly since COVID, I think that we've had the biggest leap of innovation in Australia since I've been here. You know, before there was never, ever the opportunity to have a conference call, a video conference between Melbourne and Sydney. Like you just went to Sydney if you had a meeting you would go to Sydney and I lived on planes. I was in Sydney every other week, effectively before COVID. Um, waking up at 4.30, catching the 6.30 flight, coming back 11 p.m. Like that was just a normal day. And now people are like, no, no, I don't have to do that anymore. Um, and being able to do business globally is just so much easier for Australia. So, you know, I talked to my husband who grew up in the 80s and in the country, in country Australia, they just didn't have that connectivity. So technology has opened up huge things for Australia and young people have pushed back and because of COVID and because of isolation and because of everything that's happened in the last couple of years, I feel like we've really opened up different ways of working and people are a lot more comfortable with um, being flexible about people working um, remotely. And also it's a huge country. So there's lots of people who have moved regionally and they are still able to do their jobs. It's, it's completely fascinating to me. And I think it's a great um, evolution for Australia that you've got people working in roles in Melbourne, but from interstate and they can. And people who are in the office three days a week and working remotely two days a week, like it's all happening. So I really don't want to generalize, but I, I'm just commenting on the experience I had when I moved to Australia originally as a woman in finance. It was pretty tough. I was surprised. I wasn't expecting to get pushed back. I wasn't expecting to have to reprove myself. And I really, really wasn't expecting that I was going to have to almost relearn how one operates in finance in this part of the world. Um, the basic concepts are all the same, but culturally, it's so much more network-driven. It's so much more relationship-driven. And um, in a way, that's a good thing because it forced me 
to push myself to get out there. Um, if I'm left to myself, I will probably spend half my time reading and researching and the other half of my time talking to people to get information. But when you switch countries, you've got to actually talk to people. You've got to push yourself to meet people and you've got to push yourself to inquire what, what is happening out there work-wise. So that was another opportunity for me moving countries to really get to know how to, how to operate and how to work in Australia. And some of the, some of the feedback I got was quite surprising, but it, it is what it is. So I just made it work. But um, what kind of feedback? Oh, things like, you know, you look good on paper, but you've never really worked in Australia. So um, almost encouraging me to go back a couple of steps, a couple of levels um, to earn my almost like earn my place. That was that was surprising. Um, and how did you feel about that? I was disappointed, really disappointed. I find it, um, yeah, I think, I think there's something to be said for helping people understand who you are. And this is what I love about your podcast, Celia, which is, you know, telling people your story so they can figure out and the, and the more astute people will figure out how to leverage your skills and experience for that company in ways that other people may or may not be able to do. And, and when I listen to the people on your podcast, I think that's exactly the type of people that you're identifying, which is people who've had different pathways and picked up different things along the way and applied themselves and been able to, to innovate as they went. Um, but yeah, it was hard when I got here because I, I kind of assumed, and I had two daughters, so I was really driven to, and I continue to be really motivated to set a good example for my daughters so that they can feel comfortable putting themselves out in the world of work and they can be comfortable having a family and working and doing all the things that I wanted to do for myself, which I found it periodically really challenging to do, you know, having a baby in Hong Kong and then everybody in Hong Kong just goes back, goes straight back to work. So you don't really spend time with your children at all. And my parents were like, wait a second, you know, you have children now, aren't you going to spend time at home with the baby? And I'm like, I want I have a career. I want to continue working. I didn't, I didn't work my tail off to get to this point and then decide I was going to stop just because I had children, but I also wanted to be with my children. So that was also, that was part of the, the family decision to move, move to, to Australia so we could have that balance, but then getting to Australia and not having childcare, not having my own family to rely on to help with childcare and doing the sums and realizing that I was going to have to spend a fortune on childcare. Um, and any role I took was going to have to pay a certain amount to be able to cover that cost. You know, you really have to think twice about what work you're doing, your career, your industry, how family friendly it is. So yeah, there were a lot of points in my journey throughout my life where I sort of had to reevaluate and, um, and reconsider what I thought I was going to do. So every step of the way I had a plan. And then every time I had a plan, my plans changed because our family situation changed or we had different opportunities or we wanted to raise our family. 
um, in Australia instead of in Asia. So you adapt. Mm-hmm. And what motivate? What's like the main motivator for you as you think about your career? Is it just constantly learning? I'm definitely a lifelong learner. Um, I love working on interesting, solving interesting problems. I love um, innovating and advancing through technology um, and working with things and in companies that have purpose. So when you look at my background, the companies that I work with all have amazing purpose and are delivering for customers in, in very different but consistently purpose-driven ways, whether it be purpose around students or the environment or um, superannuation. All of the companies that I ultimately decide to work with are delivering something back to society, all, you know, albeit very commercially. I, I'm, I'm highly commercial and... I do like growing businesses. I love um, the team approach of, so I'm doing a lot of board work. So I love working collaboratively with other directors and management teams who are equally driven and motivated to grow their businesses. I think that that's amazing. Um, And because I've primarily worked in the private sector my whole career, that's for me, that's, um, that's part of my DNA, but I also have worked with the public sectors. So I've worked with governments and I've worked with educators and I've worked with people who are really smart, who might not be as commercial. And I like the, I, I like the ability to translate commercial outcomes for the public sector as well. So, you know, I've done a range of things, but what I really, really love is working with groups of people who are, brought together with a common purpose and growing businesses commercially and sensibly and ethically. Mm -hmm. And you just, have you always loved the roles you've been in? I've definitely had roles that have been more challenging than others. Um, I've definitely had bosses who have pulled me up and, I think that that's been a good thing. Um, At the time, those situations were challenging, but I've brought it on myself that I've put myself in challenging positions. So naturally I was going to have challenges in my, in my career. Um, And yeah, I, I, I feel like I wouldn't be who I am if I hadn't have experienced challenge. Some of the challenge just came naturally through moving and getting different roles, but other challenges just came because I'm an ambitious, driven, professional person who puts myself out there and naturally you're going to get knocked back a couple times. Um, I've become a lot more mature and experienced around when I'm going to put myself out there, but there are moments when I continue to put myself out there more than I should. I have a very... um, I'm trying to think like I'm very open and um, I like hearing people's stories. So I tend to be a lot more transparent and 
I don't want to say gullible, but I'm, I'm just very happy to have a conversation with people and hear what they're working on. So sometimes I get the sense I overstep if I'm asking too many questions or if I'm too friendly or even just applying myself in a very American style way where I'm saying, tell me more about this. Or, you know, this seems to me that you're doing X. Am I, you know, am I getting that right? Um, as opposed to being a more formal um, English style person that tends to be the norm in Australian business. Mm -hmm. But I think you should just be able to be how you are. Of course, of course. But when you work in um, senior positions, you're also setting an example. So, you know, I tend, I, I like a joke. I like to keep things light. I like to give people an opportunity to speak freely. But when you're in serious meetings with a um, succinct timeline and you need to get through a lot of content, you know, you just got to be pretty, pretty structured and pretty, um, um, focused. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's been times where while I'm trying to keep things light and I'm trying to keep things fresh and I'm trying to keep people engaged, there have been the odd moments where I can look at my peers' faces or even, you know, one of my seniors' faces that I can tell that they just want to move on and they want to get things done and they don't want to, um, pause to reflect they want to just drive through an agenda and that's fine um so i'm always balancing i'm i'm always balancing between the right level of technical discussion versus moving through an agenda of work and this is probably applying more to my board work than my project work or to work that i do with startups but yeah you've got to be pretty focused and you've got to have a clear idea and be very strategic about what you're driving towards because otherwise you could get derailed. And particularly when you're working on technical subjects, you know, you can get derailed. So it's important that you don't lose perspective. That makes sense. Yeah. That might be something that I <laughs> struggle with at times as well. Cause I like asking a lot of questions and pausing to reflect um, but that's fine. Okay. When you're when you're in when you're in a role where you're working, I think that's completely fine. And I think people should be able to work through their their jobs in their own way and learn and and ask questions. But if you're in a meeting, it's it's important to be respectful of other people's time. Yeah, so definitely. For me. And I feel like the meeting is way too serious and we're not progressing because it's just, you can just feel the energy is just really heavy and it's really serious and people are not engaged. That's when I will try and kind of lighten things up a little bit and be like, Hey, you know, what have we got on? Um, and, and, and something will come up in the agenda and you'll sort of make it, you know, more amusing to kind of keep people, keep the energy up. Um, Cause if mm -hmm. you're into like, I don't know, a four to six hour meeting. You, you got to keep 
you got to keep the energy up. Otherwise, <laughs> you're going to lose it. And, um, and, and there's been lots of situations, whether it be project work that I've done as an executive or strategic work that I've done as a board member, where you recall the conversation where you made a significant decision and actually the technical expert they weren't heard properly and then six months later you realize that they were actually saying something else or you'll have an offline discussion with them and there's and they're explaining something and you say oh why didn't you say this in the meeting and they said oh i was i was intimidated so i'm always trying to create an environment where people feel very comfortable sharing their views while also keeping um to time and staying focused because um, there's a lot of people who deserve to have a voice at the table. Mm-hmm. And with all the different, um, like all the changes you've had in your career from capital markets to then hedge funds to startups and everything else, have you ever felt, has anyone ever told you like you should stay in your own lane or like you shouldn't? you shouldn't be switching like this is yeah like you should follow the track that your other friends who just became like obsessed with equities or whatever like why aren't you doing that so the short answer is absolutely yes i've never had anyone tell me that i should stay in my own lane and and just do one thing but i've definitely had people say they don't understand what I'm talking about when I switch between, let's say a banking discussion, whether it's um, capital management to a debt discussion, whether it be financing using debt to um, a risk discussion around, I don't know, some concept around arbitrage. I tend to bring in all these concepts and because of my, I can't work out if it's my language thing or a cultural thing, but I tend to to bring in different pieces of information, which to me makes a lot of sense. But I have had situations where people say, I don't understand what you're going on about. So I have to be really careful about how I communicate and what I'm referencing when I'm communicating so that I'm not losing the room. I'm getting much better at that. Um, the other thing I have had is people just tell me, that I need to lean back. So, you know, like just not get so engrossed in the discussion, not get so engrossed in the topic and not feel like I have to add my own two cents. Um, So particularly with board work, when you're working with executives and executives are working that hard and I've experienced this from both sides because I've been a CEO and an executive and I've been a board member. So as an executive, you know, when the board is there, you're trying to be respectful and deferential and you're trying to understand what they're asking, but usually they're asking things from a very high level. And as a board member, you're just trying to understand what the executives are working on. So I'm often trying to translate the two and split the difference. But I have had situations where people say, Ariane, you just need to pull right back because management might be getting upset that you're asking them questions about things that either they feel are too detailed or maybe there's no answer yet and it's just in the too hard basket. So I find that 
challenging sometimes. It, it's it's often just taking the temperature of the room, and that's again something where um, I've learned a lot, and and it's really exciting and fulfilling when you can read the room and either offline or in the meeting help people bridge the gap in communication or bridge the knowledge gap and say, Oh, this is what we're doing. This is what we're talking about. And then you can see everybody kind of nod and say, and like out of gratitude and be like, yes, that's what we're doing. And yes, we agree. Or yes, this is where we need to make a decision. Um, I, I find that fulfilling when you can take people on the journey with you around an idea that you're working on. So for example, I used to chair an investment committee at a super fund and there was a lot of jargon. We had, a, we had an external consultant who was basically hired to come and talk to the committee. And this guy was super technical and he wasn't adding a lot of value. So I finally said to the chairman, I said, look, I don't know if we need this guy and I'm happy to chair the committee and um, maybe we can run it separately for six months and then you can make a call. And I got amazing feedback that I was running the meeting better without the consultant than with the consultant. And it was just because I could use plain English and the chief investment officer was doing a great job bringing in the papers. We would work together before the meeting and get everything prepared. So it was really clear and just run a really productive meeting. And that opportunity and that experience has made me a lot more confident about other things that I've applied myself towards. But my problem is I keep stretching myself and putting myself into challenging roles. And, you know, you have to, you have to, you have to be thoughtful about what you're going to take on and why. Um, and for me, yeah, it's typically there's a finance element to it. And there's something that's happening currently where I think there's a growth opportunity and where um, I'd like to believe I can add value in, in lifting a discussion or, or um, moving through something longer with another group of people because I don't I don't like spending too much time um, on on academic topics as opposed to applied topics if that makes sense. Yeah. So with confidence, did you go stepping into any of these career changes or new roles or? board seats or whatever did you ever feel like I might be out of my depth or you were just so excited for the challenge and felt confident all the time I think the only thing that drove me was a my personal drive combined with people I'd meet who would say you should do x so um yeah when I moved to when I moved to New York people were like, you should work on Wall Street. You're, you know, you love this. um, You love these things. You're good at math. You study economics. You'd be great. So when I heard that from a couple of people, I was like, okay, I'll do this. And, um, and usually I, I'm, I'm a big one for lead indicators. Um, And, and I also now look at lag indicators, but if I had enough, if I have enough people around me saying you should try this or you would be good at this, I typically, I'm more willing to try it than just going in cold um, because going in cold, I haven't been as successful. Um, people have approached me for things that I never would have imagined I would have done, like building a risk model for 
arbitrage strategies and you know realizing that we didn't actually have one and i was like wow you know I've, and i'd be learning all about these strategies and i'm like and then the risk team would be asking us every single day what are our exposures and I couldn't answer that question. So, so I was like, we better build something here because otherwise I've got to calculate this manually every single day. And that's exhausting. So anything where I can um, streamline or build a tool which will actually synthesize information and save time, I'm, I'm all over that. I'm like, yep, yeah, uh, and it's worth doing. Um, but yeah, for example, when I moved to Australia, I was thinking I would go back to work full time. And then I realized that with two daughter, two young daughters and no family and no grandparents to care give, it was going to be really hard. And also the salaries that people were telling me at the same time as encouraging me to go backwards in my career, because I had to earn my place in finance in Australia as a woman, the numbers just didn't add up. And I was looking at it like, this is a really interesting problem to solve. And this is, and it was pissing me off because I'd already worked for um, a while and I'd been promoted in a number of roles. I was on track to be partner at Goldman Sachs. So I was thinking, God, I don't want to go backwards here. But I, I knew that I had to do something to solve that problem. Um, so I definitely started operating in a way where if people encouraged me to do something because they said we need more people like you or we need more women like you doing x and i saw that it was it it there weren't that many people doing something then i would put myself forward because a i saw it as a challenge b i saw it as an opportunity if people were telling me there's an opportunity and for example when i was asked to be the ceo at scale investors that was the first time I'd left both large investment banking firms to join a much smaller team. But three people said to me, Ariane, you'd be really good at this job. You should try it. And they were recruiting someone. And I was originally, I was like, no, I could never do that. I have to switch completely. I'd have to learn from, I'd have to start from scratch to learn a completely new area. And I don't think, there's enough happening in startups in Australia. But then I did my research and then more people said, wow, you'd be really good at this. You should, you should look into this. And because I'd done alternatives in Asia, I was a lot more comfortable working in alternatives than other people were. Um, so usually it's a function of me seeing an opportunity combined with people telling me you should try this. And when I feel mm -hmm. like people back then I'm more willing to put myself out there, even though it's usually and, and then do you kind of make the decision, like make a switch from, okay, I'm not sure about this to I really want to do it and I'm going to go for it. Yeah. And then you end up in that role. Yeah. But I mean, I've had a couple of those situations where I haven't ended up in the role but I've had enough where I have ended up in the role or um, I've had people say I should try something and that is enough motivation to spur me on to put myself into, into the path of things where I am successful. And then how do you deal with the times where you fail? I... 
reflect a lot. So I probably spend way too much time thinking what I should have done differently or what I could have done. Um, but once I get through that phase, it's more, wow, what an amazing experience. And I learned so much doing that. And usually I have some really great people that I met through that experience where I wouldn't have otherwise met and they become friends. And, um, and there's a lot of mutual respect derived by people who work through challenges and people who see you go through a challenging period. And that's probably been one of the biggest silver linings of any of the challenges I've had in my life and my career, which is I've met the most amazing people who have been there for me in ways that I never would have planned. Um, so it's not something you look for, but when you experience challenge, whether it's personal or professional, there's usually one or two people around you who can see what's going on and the really high quality ones help get you through. And that's, that's pretty special. Mm -hmm. So you have gratitude basically for these yeah. failures. Yeah. Okay. There's so much, there's so much more I want to ask you, but we've already gone for an hour and 20, so we should probably start wrapping up. I yeah. want to ask you the last three questions that I ask everyone when I remember, but is there anything else you want to say before that? No, I think um, it's been wonderful talking to you. I'm always happy to hear what... Um, what you're interested in exploring, but I hope, I hope it's been helpful and um, I'm happy to chat anytime. Thank you. Um, no, it's been so helpful. It's so interesting just to understand, I think especially that young age bit where it's like you're coming into the world when you're figuring things out and then it's like, oh, you know, that point where you found out your parents actually couldn't, you like you had to help contribute to the tuition it's like that how that affects your mentality and then like what happens from then it just seems to make so much sense like when you look at anyone's life who's achieved a lot of things it's like okay how did it happen and you can go a long way back um okay so First question, do you have any kind of mindfulness practices or what do you do to stay grounded? Great question. So I, there are two things and um, probably um, I really focus on them as a function of COVID because I've never experienced such a limited, um, such limits to my personal freedom and my ability to get out into the world except through COVID in Melbourne. So um, one thing I do, if things are getting really tense or if I'm feeling like I'm you know, really stressed about something, I'll do box breathing, which helped me a lot in, um, at the tail end of COVID when I was, I, I probably worked way too many hours sitting down for way too long, not taking breaks. And um, there was a couple of stressful, really, really stressful moments. So I learned, I was listening to a podcast and I learned about box breathing and that, and that actually really works. So 
whenever I'm experiencing stress, I'll do box breathing and it just comes back. Um, and the other thing is running. I used to run as a student, as a child, I was on cross country team in middle school and I love running. I love cardio and now I'm running again and I'm doing all sorts of cardio and I absolutely love it. And if I don't exercise every day, I can feel my energy just drop. So, um, yeah, I'm really enjoying exercise daily. Exercise. Amazing. Okay. Is there a book that has had a big impact on your life? I love thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman. Um, that book and a lot of people know it, so I hate being a cliche, but when I read that book, I was like, this is fantastic because working in finance and working with that many people in finance who, many of whom were very fast, but through that book, realizing that if you actually slow your thinking down, you can speed it up. And that gave me the permission to feel like I was being really slow to learn new technical concepts, but then speeding up because I'd taken the time. So I feel a lot more confident about um, digesting information now. Whereas I used to get quite intimidated with people who would just read something and say, yeah, this is super obvious. This is this, 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 this. And I'd say, well, hang on. I haven't finished understanding this particular element of that subject, whatever it is. Um, yeah, I love that book. And last questions. What, which three words describe the best version of you? Wow. Okay. I should have prepared for this one. Um, the three words. So I am authentic. Um, I am kind and I'm commercial. Amazing. Thanks, Gilly. That's Gilly. it. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. And um, thank you for everything you're doing. Keep going. Congratulations. Um, I think what you're doing is fantastic. And I love that you have this medium and you can share it globally. Yes. Thanks. Great job. <laughs>